Part 2. What is God doing? If we did not know better, we might suppose that having once created a perfect universe, the Lord God would walk in the delightful garden forever with his people, filling their lives with the blessing of his loving kindness. But that is not what happened. After its first three or four pages, the Bible shows us the Creator repairing a ruin. He is patching up a world in pain, warning against recurring danger, contending against bitter opposition. Repeatedly he steps into messy situations to rescue people who are in deep trouble. Like us, he is engaged in making the best of things as they are. The Bible is not a pleasant story of Plan A, describing peaceful enjoyment of a perfect world. It's a blow-by-blow account of Plan B, for survival in a flawed and very troubled world. This is not to say that Plan B was a newly improvised idea. We read that it was prepared before the foundation of the world. Nevertheless, it was not implemented until Plan A had been launched and rebuffed. From that tragic moment, the Lord God has been building with cracked bricks on trembling foundations. His plans are constrained by the circumstances he is in, caring for foolish people in a fragile environment with a devious adversary. He is engaged in makeshift repair and damage limitation. Like a teacher who, instead of presenting his lesson, must plead with his class for their attention and rebuke their badly done homework until the bell rings and all his time is gone. For this reason, we may find him doing what we would not expect him to do, and what he would not wish to do, and what he would not do at all on a perfect earth. It's like filling a chipped pot that leaks, driving a wagon with four flat tyres, tending sheep who prefer to stray. And this entails greater force and more discomfort than would be contemplated in the unblemished idyll of the newly created Eden. The planet is no longer as it was in the beginning. We may well marvel that so much of its surface, although cracked and scarred, remains safe for humans, animals and birds to live upon. Despite the damage, it retains such beauty and grandeur that seeing it we are moved to worship. Life on earth is not nearly as dangerous as it might be. Earthquakes and volcanoes, hurricanes, floods and famines have been called acts of God and as such are considered unpredictable and unavoidable. This is quite misleading, for in most cases they are very predictable and avoidable. 
natural disasters generally occur in known locations and are preceded by warning signs. They become tragic only because many of the poorest people are obliged to live in dangerous places and cannot avoid the danger. Without efficient transport, they have no means of escape. Lacking political influence, they have nowhere else to go. In their poverty, they have no access to the technology or engineering or medicine or law that might secure their safety. When suffering comes, its cause is far more often human selfishness and stupidity than disease or natural disaster. In many places, people with power and wealth are seeking not to limit corruption, tyranny and war, but to exploit these for their own advantage. In times of personal grief, we may sometimes wonder why God does not completely and permanently eradicate the diseases that afflict humankind. And why has he never halted the universal processes of decay and death? There is a simple reason. As things stand, every conqueror and oppressor eventually suffers illness or gets old and dies. But in a world with no disease, decay or death, a tyrant would continue in robust health to exploit and enslave his people and neighbouring peoples forever and ever. This makes one thing clear. The earth can only be healed when every last predator and parasite is gone. We will only be safe when every trace of evil is removed from our planet and when all its inhabitants desire to live in harmony. Our world cannot be put right until everyone in it wants it put right. Only then will it stay right. To accomplish this, human nature must be completely changed, on a global scale, without exception, so that no one ever wishes to exploit or oppress or harm another, so that everyone is generous and kind, and everyone wants peace. Is that possible? Perhaps it is. There may be a way. Some might suggest that God is helpless to prevent suffering. Others might think he decrees it. But the truth is that he finds it as painful as we do. The Bible shows how often he intervened for those in his special care. For we read, he could no longer bear the misery of Israel. In their distress, he came to the help of his people, providing for their needs and restraining their oppressors. It says, in all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. We have seen how the Creator has blessed us with immune systems and healing processes, and with plants possessing a wide range of medicinal powers. He's also equipped many animals with defensive instincts and colorations. 
This all speaks of his ongoing concern for creatures struggling to survive in a fallen world. It shows that he still has plans and purposes in mind and is able to fulfil them. While those who serve him are his special care, the eternal God is also concerned for the multitudes ignorant of him and opposed to him and even for their animals. He said, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many cattle? As the Bible writers studied the world around them, they were certain of one thing. The eternal God is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. There can be no doubt. We read, The earth is full of the steadfast love of the eternal. If his love is assured, so also is his power to sustain and to save. Job declared, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah agreed. It is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Assured of his love and his power, we then see that the creator of the universe has definite intentions. Solomon observed, There are many plans in a person's heart, yet the purpose of the eternal God prevails. The future indeed is bright for God's people. I know the plans I have for you, declares the eternal God plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The Bible writers were all convinced that the world is not out of control or without purpose. It's not careering blindly towards destruction as many people suppose. It was formed with great care and despite the damage suffered, is still being lovingly sustained and directed towards a definite goal. So we might wonder whether it's possible somehow for planet Earth to become a peaceful place where everyone is kind and helpful. We've seen that Jesus healed diseased bodies. He also restored sanity to sick minds happiness to broken hearts and direction to misspent lives. One man said, Once I was given to slandering, persecuting, insulting, but I received mercy. Another who was useless became useful. A tax collector gave back all he had pilfered from the poor and added four times more. Jesus changed people for the better. We might say that he mended the bricks, repaired the leaks, fixed the wheels, and gathered the wandering sheep. He embarked on the great enterprise of transforming human nature. Among a corrupt and rebellious humanity, 
he began to establish for himself a people of his own, a company who are genuinely good and ready for life in a perfect world. When Jesus Christ comes into his kingdom and all things are made new, then we will see what our Creator really wants to do. Plan A will be relaunched and everything on earth will be as he first intended. This is why we pray, Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day his creation will truly reflect his character. We will see him doing exactly what he wishes and we will do it with him. A young child cannot appreciate how much thought her parents give to caring for her. Good food, warm clothing, a comfortable bed, all appear on cue. She's not hungry, thirsty, lonely, cold or frightened. Family or friends are always near, protecting her from anything dangerous or unpleasant. It's a wonderful thing to discover that we have a Heavenly Father who cares for us like this. Jesus said, Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Our health recovers, our bones mend, our wounds heal. And if we lack anything, He hears our prayers and provides for us. Yet we also have an enemy who desires to test our weakness, to hurt and upset us, to corrupt our character and undermine our faith. Most of the time, the children of God are blissfully unaware of all that could go wrong. It does not touch them, because the Lord of heaven and earth sets a guard around them, keeping them from harm. To Abraham he said, Fear not, I am your shield. Moses' generation were a people saved by the Eternal, the shield of your help. David affirmed, He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. The Israelites had long experience of this. We read, When they were few in number, of little account, and foreigners in the land, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Do not touch my chosen ones, or harm my prophets. Many times they prayed, and he stepped in, to restrain a brutal ruler, to shatter a powerful army, to hold back a mighty sea. In a moment of great peril he promised, No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Knowing all this, David declared, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In many different ways the Lord God protects his people. He leads them in safe paths, so they keep well out of danger. He diverts their enemies elsewhere, or summons their friends to help them. He prevents difficulties, 
removes hindrances, and restrains whatever may cause harm. He does this by moving human hearts and minds, and he does it also through the ministry of angels. It has been said they are indescribably beautiful, unspeakably majestic, unutterably powerful, and supernaturally intelligent. They rule celestial domains of untold magnitude and of inconceivable grandeur. They surround the throne of the Almighty and constitute the court of the King of Kings. They also serve his people here on earth. We read, The angel of the Eternal keeps guard around those who revere him and rescues them. The concern of these heavenly beings extends even to the millions who are alienated from their Maker. We read, There is joy before the angels of God over one evildoer who has a change of heart. At certain moments in biblical history, in time of mortal danger, God's people became aware of angelic hosts near at hand to help. An army from the land of Syria swept in with horses and chariots to capture Elisha. But he reassured his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those with them. Then he prayed, O eternal God, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Eternal opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. We too are surrounded by unseen hosts of guardian angels defending us against danger. This, indeed, is their present task. We read, they are ministers of God, sent out to serve for the sake of those who shall inherit salvation. They watch over us and stand in the way of anyone seeking to do us harm. They shut the mouths of lions, as they did for Daniel. They lead us out of danger, as they did for Lot. They stop us in our foolish tracks, as they did for Balaam. When Jacob felt defenceless and alone, a vision of angels restored his faith in the Almighty. When Jesus was weak with hunger, they refreshed and strengthened him. Angels may sometimes appear in human form and seem to us like people. If a stranger says something very helpful or encouraging at the moment when we most need it, this might easily be an angel sent to guide us and it could happen at any time. So we read, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some have entertained angels without knowing it. But our Lord can speak through ordinary people too. Jethro's wise advice saved Moses from exhaustion. Abigail's thoughtful words kept David from vindictiveness. Naomi's guidance helped Ruth thrive in her new culture. 
This is how our Heavenly Father cares for us. In all these things we see that the Lord is good, and he will work for good in the lives of any who want him to. But that does not mean it's always easy. Our God does not promise us an easy life any more than he planned an easy life for his beloved Son. Even before his birth, our Saviour's path was beset by thorns. Still in his mother's womb, he was jolted seventy miles over rough tracks to a crowded and unfriendly city. Mary's pains came in the dirtiest of places, with animals moving heavily in the dark. The safest spot for the newborn babe was a feeding trough stained by their saliva. His life was threatened by a paranoid tyrant, and the family fled to Egypt with no provision for food or shelter along the way or at their destination. As refugees in a foreign land, they had no secure income or future. Then a long trek back to Jerusalem and a dangerous new king. More dusty roads, beset by bandits, seeking safety in the obscurity of a small northern town. This is a story of squalor, uncertainty, thirst and hunger, of a young couple with a baby, weary and sore beneath the burning sun. It is not glorious. The love of the Eternal deliberately chose a hard path for his dear son and for the beloved pair called to care for him. The baby had no special privileges and no immunity from trouble. Throughout this time he was kept safe by hiding and moving from place to place. It's heroic only because Joseph and Mary coped heroically with the adverse circumstances they faced. The ministry of Jesus was no easier than his birth. His youth is obscure and unacclaimed. Reaching maturity, he was led into the wilderness, suffering hunger and thirst for forty days. Weary and weak, he was tempted to take an easier path. Offering good news to the people of his town, they were so annoyed they tried to throw him off a cliff. He was hated, betrayed, insulted, spat on, mocked, whipped, and finally nailed to a cross. This was the normal Christian life for the beloved Son of God. His heavenly Father was with him every moment of the way, not pampering him with benefits and favours, but strengthening him to stand in the face of wickedness and to bear the worst that could be thrown at him. He must experience evil to the full if he is to rescue us from the peril we are in. No doubt, twelve legions of angels could have been sent to keep the baby safe. No doubt, the devil could have been locked away before the child was born. No doubt, the persecuting priests could have been silenced, the arrogant rulers deposed, the soldiers struck down. But the Son of God is not offered an easy ride. He must endure all that humankind endures.
so we read, it was fitting that in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, God, who owns and sustains all things, should through suffering perfect the one who leads them to salvation. Yes, indeed, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. It is in this context that Jesus accomplished all he did. He worked the most tremendous good amidst extreme degrees of evil. In his life, we see the battle at its most intense. We see the power and the glory and the victory he won. We live in the same disordered world, facing the same hardships and prejudices and the same malicious powers of darkness. We suffer what is common to humankind and are learning to face it as he did, for we face it cheerfully, trusting our Heavenly Father and waiting for him to work it all for good. Like Mary and Joseph and the child they raised, we have a path prepared for us. And as it is written, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Suffering to accomplish a worthwhile purpose is often heroic and can achieve great things. Our Lord may lead us into a wilderness because beyond it lies a promised land. But suffering for no purpose at all is tragic and may be simply stupid. Straying into a wasteland through our own folly will not lead us anywhere and we have nothing to hope from it. Throughout the Bible, we see the Lord of heaven and earth assessing people. It is written, The eyes of the Eternal run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are faithful to him. There are some that he is glad to help. The steps of a man are established by the Eternal God when he delights in his way. Indeed, when a man's ways please the Eternal, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But there are others he leaves to their own devices, and some he hinders and obstructs. It is written, The eyes of the Lord are on those who please him, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was one who pleased God, and so was blessed. We are told that the eternal God was with him and caused all he did to prosper. Later, the eternal was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And Samuel, too. The eternal was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And then... David had success in all he did, for the eternal God was with him. Why did God bless these men? Because he judged them faithful and worthy of his blessing. Others he judged unfaithful. Some had hoped for fine weather and good harvests, but they were rebuffed. 
Your wrongdoings have turned these away, and your evil deeds have kept good things from you. From experience, the psalmist had learned this lesson. If I allow wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Indeed, failure is the usual consequence of folly. So we read, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. There is a difference between those who live with God and those who try to live without him. So we have this choice, either to manage our own affairs or to place them in God's hands. David, when insulted, could defend his honour by taking revenge. Or he could entrust his case to the providence of God. Abigail, that wise woman, advised the latter course and with good reason. If anyone chases you and tries to kill you, she said, your life shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Eternal who is your God and the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the hollow of a sling. We often face a similar decision. We can tie ourselves into the bundle of those whose lives are in his care, or we can choose to live without him and take care of ourselves. The Lord God sees our respect for him, or lack of it. He sees what we do, or fail to do. He hears what we say or fail to say. He's aware of all we hope for and desire, and he's ready either to hinder or to help. He knows which of us are bound in the bundle of the living in his care, and which have chosen to manage their own affairs. Even now, the creator and sustainer of the universe, holds out his hands to us, waiting to see what we will do. So we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some think, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should have a change of heart. In the days of Noah, he held back the flood, so that any wishing to be saved might find their way to safety. In Sodom, if ten good people can be found, he is willing to defer that city's downfall. If the inhabitants of Nineveh will give heed to Jonah's warning, the judgment about to fall on them could be averted. In the same way, the Lord God bears patiently with our own generation. We read that he delays the punishment of the ungodly until the day of judgment. And he offers each of us a choice. Not a choice to acquire the knowledge of evil, but rather to escape it. And he waits for our response. <laughs> 